So Mark 5, beginning at verse 20, uh, verse 1, sorry. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high, high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. But he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. At once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it, how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in the Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marvelled. This is God's word. Let's pray before we study it together. Lord God, as we seek to come to true and right and proper understanding of your word this morning, that we might live more fully for you, we ask that you would help us to do this. We pray, O God, that we would not lean on our own efforts or our own understanding or our own strength, but that your spirit alone might move us, strengthen us, shape us and grow us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we have just passed over the one quarter mark of Mark's gospel. And in the first quarter of Mark, we've seen some absolutely incredible things unfolding. We've seen beautiful, amazing, powerful things about Jesus. And we've seen four areas in particular where Jesus has absolute authority which makes sense when he's the author of everything. The author should have authority. Now, those four things that Jesus has authority in, uh, he has authority to heal, authority to teach, has authority over nature, as we saw last week, and authority over demons. Now, that last one of authority over demons is further explored for us today. And this account isn't just in Mark, it's also in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8 if you'd like to look in those uh, as well later on. Now, as we get into this today, there's a lot of questions that we can ask. As a, and sometimes we can ask the wrong questions and have our sympathy go to the wrong places. As a bacon lover, 
hurts my heart a little bit seeing 2,000 sources of bacon destroyed. That's not the right things to be focusing on. We need to, as we look at this today, see the miraculous, incredible power of Christ. But sometimes when we focus on the miraculous, we can miss the, the, the daily lessons that Jesus teaches us as well. We need to be able to see both of these things and hold it all together that we might better live for God in our own day-to-day lives. So Mark, uh, the beginning of chapter 5, picks up after the massive storm that Jesus had calmed with just his words. And we saw that the calming of the sea, the stilling of the storm, it was things that were just absolutely mind-boggling. It wasn't the normal pattern. He did a divine act last week because we read about that. It was a storm that the seasoned fishermen thought that they were going to die in and it was just stopped to nothing by nothing more than Jesus' words. Now Mark keeps us chugging through and after those events we see the boat reach its destination. Uh, Mark 4.35, Jesus got into the boat with the disciples to go to the other side to the Sea of Galilee. Mark 5.1, they make to their destination. We're now in the country of the Gadarenes. Now, This isn't the main point, but I will explain this anyway, because depending on the translation you have before you, you might read there that it was in the region of the Gerasenes, not the Gadarenes. You might be going, what is going on there? Why have we got these two different things? What's happening here is Gerasa and Gadara were both cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, out past the edge of the Jordan River. They were both in the same region. Some people would refer to this as the Gadarenes as the whole area. Some people would refer to it as the Gerasenes as a whole area. Now, Gadara was a, a better-known city at the time, but it's about 9 or 10 kilometres inland. So it's probably closer to the city of Gerasa, where they were, but the whole thing could be used, both the city names could be used interchangeably to describe where they are. Now, so it's not the main point, but we do see this difference in some translations. I'm just explaining that so that we have confidence that what Mark's telling us is actually accurate. It's not mistakes being presented here in Scripture. It's just how we might talk about being in Brisbane right here, but we're actually in Everton Park. Same sort of concept. We're in the greater Brisbane area, not Brisbane proper. That sort of thing plays out. So we go back to the account. Jesus and the disciples, they they rock up on the other side of the sea. They, They make land... And after what we saw last week with that storm, you can almost imagine us with a not insignificant amount of relief. We're safe. We've finally made it to land. We've got somewhere safe. We've survived. We're out of danger. But maybe not. Is this maybe an out of the, fire, out of the pan into the fire situation? We don't know. We see what happens. As soon as they land, immediately this man comes before them. He comes towards them. This man who had a reputation not for the right things. This is a man who lived out in the tombs and in the mountains. A man who had an unclean spirit. He is a demon-possessed man. He is a demon-possessed man not living in community with people. And we see that when he has been around people, he hasn't exactly behaved himself. We don't know what he did but it wasn't good, proper, civil conduct. The people had tried to chain him. The people had tried to shackle him. And we don't know exactly how this happened, 
But we see something crazy. The chains, the shackles, they had been broken by this demon-possessed man. We read that in verse 4. He'd broken these things to pieces. No one and nothing could restrain this fellow. And while he lived out in the mountains and the tombs, he was always crying, always cutting himself with stones. This is a graphic and horrific scene. This demon-possessed man is a wild, he's a rogue, he's an uncontrollable element that enters Mark's narrative. Maybe Jesus and his disciples, or at least the disciples, thinking maybe we could have made land just a little bit further up. Maybe we could have stayed in the storm just a little bit longer. We really don't want to deal with this guy right now. But this is where, in God's sovereignty, they are. Keep that picture of this man in your mind. This is a man who has not been able to be controlled by anyone or anything. And he is now approaching somebody who, with just his words, calmed a huge windstorm that threatened to drown seasoned watermen. If the locals knew both sides of this and were watching, you would perhaps understand if they thought that this was an event taking place of an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Two powerhouses, as it were, are colliding. I see in verse 6 that this demon-possessed man, he saw Jesus from afar, he ran to him and worshipped him. And as we talked about in the kids' talk, it's weird. It's not true worship. Sometimes we can perhaps fall into traps where we worship God for what we can get out of it ourselves in ways that aren't true worship or faithful worship or God-honouring at all. Jesus talks about that with the Samaritan woman by the well in John chapter 4, that we need to worship God in spirit and in truth. This is not the sort of worship that would be pleasing to God. But what we see from this demon-possessed man It starts off with all the right words. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? There's an acknowledgement, there's a declaration, there's an open statement, probably loud given the way this guy's wailing all the time. A loud declaration of who Jesus is. But we soon see the motivation behind it. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. It's almost as if he's saying the right thing so that he might get a lighter punishment for the crimes that these these demons have been committing. Again, we need to make sure that when we worship God, we worship in spirit and truth, not so that we can twist God's arm or think we can twist God's arm into making things easier for us or perhaps to lessen The punishment for for sins we've committed, that's not right worship. It seems this worship from this demon-possessed man has just been to lessen the judgment and Jesus dealing with him perhaps a little bit more nicely as if God Almighty could actually be manipulated like this. But he does know Jesus. He does acknowledge who Jesus is and he asks not to be tortured. Verse 8. Jesus says, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asks, what is your name? 
I wouldn't recommend, if you're a parent, listening to a graphic audio Bible with your kids when you get to this part here. There are some really weird, disturbing voices that come across. But it really seems to capture what's going on here. The response from this demon-possessed man is skin-crawling to consider. My name is Legion, for we are many. My name, singular, very quickly becomes plural, we are many. A legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers at least. Now, whether the demon is just saying there's a lot of them or whether there actually are, a legion of 6,000 or more is up for debate. But think about what this means for the man who's been possessed by this. It's just, it's, it's horrific, it's graphic, it's terrifying. It's just a gross thing to read. I'm saying that it's gross as a father of an eight-week-old kid where everything seems to be liquid in our house. This is just gross. It's disgusting. It's horrific. It's a legion, as his name is, begs to not be sent out of the country. And this, from verse 11, is where my bacon-loving heart gets conflicted. There were were pigs, there were swine nearby. And the demons begged Jesus to go into them. We can only speculate as to the reasons why Jesus allowed this. Now, there's a lot of books that have been written about this. A lot of commentators will, will write about this. And even the ones who write most definitively still have elements of speculation as to exactly why Jesus allowed for this to happen. But Jesus does allow for this to happen. And we saw last week, God is good. God is able and God is faithful from the way that Jesus acted. We shouldn't assume that that's changed here today. So this legion of demons flees from this man into the 2,000 pigs that were there and the herd ran violently down the hill and they drowned in the sea. This is not a quiet scene to look at. These are 2,000 heavy, well-fed, hoofed animals running down into the sea where they would not have drowned quietly. This is... Uh, the, the, the pictures behind this, are, it, it's a scene full of just immensity. Big things are happening. And Jesus is not just exercised one demon from this man. If we're going to take the legion word literally, which I think we, we can do it fairly, fairly confidently, he has cast out 6,000 demons. 6,000. The odds here is 6,000 to 1. This is not an an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Legion knew as soon as he saw Jesus making land that he was in trouble, that he did not stand a chance in this fight. It's not as if Jesus broke a sweat doing this either. Again, he cast him out. Come out of the man, unclean spirit, just with words. The incredible power of Jesus is very clearly on display here. And the pig stampede did not go unnoticed. The herdsmen saw it, they went to town. It's 2,000 noisy pigs kicking up dust, violently charging into this body of water where they drowned. This is not a discreet scene that took place. Now the herdsmen are obviously quite upset by what's happened. 
they go into the town and they tell the people there what's happened. The, the, the herdsmen and the townspeople, they all come out and they come out to talk to Jesus figure out what actually happened. Now again, huge noisy scene with this herd of swine. That's the sort of stuff that has an impact on you when you see or even hear of something like that happening. But you want to know what had a bigger impact on the crowds that day when they came out to Jesus? The man who was demon-possessed, sitting, fully clothed, and in his right mind. That's just a man sitting in clothes, not acting out. That should be normal. Why is that more attention-grabbing, though? Surely, someone sitting at the feet of an itinerant preacher is not as spectacular as what happened to the herd of pigs. But it is. And it is more spectacular because of who this man is and what he had been. He is the now formerly possessed demon that man who is formerly possessed by demons. This wild, rogue, uncontrolled element that had been an absolute nuisance is now sitting calmly, fully clothed in his right mind. And he seems to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. And this is a remarkable thing. This is far more astounding for the people, and rightly so. Is that the feet of Jesus, this incomprehensibly powerful figure that this man now sits? Last week, we finished off in verse 41 with the disciples being afraid of Jesus because uh, who is this that even with his words, the wind and the waves, they obey him? This week, strangers from this area, not in Israel, They come to Jesus and they're afraid. There's a sense of fear behind what happens. Clearly, from the way this scene is set out, Jesus is the one who has freed this man from his demonic possession. He is now restrained, which was something that even their chains and shackles couldn't do. And from verse 17, we see two, see two particular responses to another, another revelation of Jesus' might and power. The people from this town were afraid. So they asked Jesus to leave. Just leave, please, go away. They pleaded. which perhaps indicates an unwillingness to rise up in open opposition, but the rejection can't be ignored. Go away, Jesus. You've done great and mighty and incredible things, stuff we couldn't do for ourselves. We could not control this guy, but you haven't just locked him up and put him off in a room somewhere. He is now in his right mind. He is now civil and well-behaved. That is a good thing for our place, for our towns, but go away because you scare us. Because we can't fully understand you. 
because this is beyond anything we could ever imagine for ourselves. Go away, we don't want you. Take the bunch of great things you do and leave. We don't want you. Sadly, we see that mirrored today, don't we? We see that same attitude present itself in different circumstances, admittedly. We're seeing wonderful, mighty, great things that God does and people saying, no, thank you. Go away. I don't want to be part of it. Arguably, that is the most terrifying part of this whole passage. That people would say that to the author of life. That you would say that to God Almighty. That's the first response. And the other response is a man who has now been cleansed of demons. Now, we never know this guy's name. Amazing, isn't it? We just don't know his name. But it doesn't change what we can learn here. Jesus tells him to, to go everyone. Go, go, go and tell everyone. Tell people what's happened. And, and this guy, he does it. He does it. He knows his freedom. He knows his freedom comes from Jesus. He knows he has liberty now. He knows the Lord of light and life itself. He, he bows the knee to Jesus. He goes where he is sent. He tells people about Jesus. It's interesting, Jesus tells him in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion upon you. Verse 20, the guy seems to have done that, but then he goes into the Decapolis. Now, it's just a Greek word combining Deca for 10 and Polis cities, area of 10 cities. He went into this area of 10 cities and told heaps of people. He didn't just do the bare minimum. He responded with this overflowing abundance of gratitude and desire to tell people about Jesus. Now, some of the prophecies regarding the Messiah. Think of those parts of Isaiah where it would be too light a thing, a suffering servant, just to save the 12 tribes of Israel. But that even the far coastlands would receive his light. That starts to happen here. We are not in Israel. We're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We are past the end of the River Jordan. And the good news is now being preached by a formerly demon-possessed man into the Decapolis. Not Israelite lands, but the good news is going there. We don't know how people responded to that initial message and the, the, the original messenger. But it seems, we can't say it definitively, but it seems as if one soul has already been saved and is responding in gratitude to his saviour. But whether they believed or not, all marvelled. Those are the last two words in verse 20, all marvelled. That is in the Decapolis. It's the area of ten cities, all marvelled who heard this. Even if there is rejection of Jesus... There is still marvelling at what he has done. So do we marvel at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Do we sit at the feet of Jesus with a willingness to learn? 
do we take what we have learned of the great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you, which is the story of every Christian, do we take that and share that? Do we share the good news with our friends, with our family, with the communities that we live in? Do we do this? Because what seems to be coming out here is a picture of a response full of gratitude. Some people will be like the the demon-possessed man was at the start. In a spiritual sense, just breaking those chains that would have minimised his harmful ways. Breaking those chains that would have inhibited his ability to self-harm. Maybe some of us are like that now and we just want to go and ignore anything that looks like restraint because we want to be free but we end up doing hurt to ourselves and hurt to others and causing offence to God the whole way. Or, or we can be bound to Jesus. Just like this man who is now cleansed of his demon, demon possession. It's not a completed picture, but we begin to see a picture of life with Jesus. Yes, there is a sense of restraint, but it is a restraint from sin and harmful tenants and even sometimes self-harming tendencies. And that restraint, that being bound to Jesus is a good thing because what is restrained is sin. And that is a joyful thing. We now, as Christians, live for God. We now belong to a global kingdom-building task that he has for the church. So what we need to do, what we have to do is to sit at his feet, to learn what he teaches us, and to tell people that our God does great things, and that our, God, our great God has incredible compassion. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for what we read here in Mark 5, where it's just incomprehensible power of Christ is put on display. There's whole sequences of events that we can't fully wrap our heads around and we, we, we can't do it reading this and even if we'd been there physically seeing what was happening before us we still wouldn't be able to fully understand just the, the scope of power on display but Lord God we pray that we would be impacted by this that we would remember that that same power that saved the demon possessed man is the power that saved us from sin that we are cleansed that we are yours And we pray, Lord God, that you would stir up in us a desire to live for you, to love you more, and to share that you do great things. You have done great things in our lives and of your wonderful, incredible, immeasurable compassion.